Welcome to Cast 9. In this episode, I talk with Michael Marshall, a.k.a. Marsh, about his efforts to promote science and critical thinking in the UK. You can listen to Marsh regularly on his podcast, Skeptics with a K. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Marsh, welcome to the show. Uh, Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm Michael Marshall. I'm a, a full-time skeptical activist, uh, and possibly I think the only full-time skeptical activist in the UK. One of the few full-time skeptical investigators in the world, I think. Um, I work for a charity called uh, the Good Thinking Society, uh, which is set up by science writer Simon Singh, who I'm sure many of your listeners uh, will be aware of or may have stumbled across his books uh, at some point. He's a very well-known uh, author in uh, the sort of popular science type area really and um, he started Good Thinking Society about five or six years ago and uh, I came on board as a, a full-time employee, the only full-time employee of the charity three years ago and now I spend my time investigating things and campaigning against pseudoscience and going around the country and sometimes around the world giving talks and uh, at the same time I've been involved in, in sort of skeptical activism since 2009 when I co-founded the Merseyside Skeptic Society which is a a small non-profit kind of community group uh, in Liverpool, UK. And uh, yeah, I started that uh, really as a place for a few friends to kind of get together um, or people who um, might not be friends yet, but at least had uh, a commonality of, uh, of interest in a place where, yeah, you wouldn't accidentally stumble over saying something that's going to wildly offend the person you're talking to because they are secretly super into astrology and you never knew until you just said astrology is a lot of nonsense. So um, that's kind of, that's what I've been about. So I've been involved in Mozart Skeptics and do a couple of different podcasts, uh, one of which is Skeptics with a K and I do various little bits of skeptical activism and investigations and just generally try and cause a bit of mischief for people who who deserve it really. (laughs) Nice. So what is the Good Thinking Society and what does it do? Good thinking. We're a we're a, a registered charity uh, here in the UK, so we are an, an actual official charitable organisation. And there's a number of different sides to our work. And one side of it is um, science promotion and sort of the the encouragement uh, to recognise the benefits of uh, a good grasp of science. And the way I always characterise it is, you know, we live in a world where. Um, people will have benefited so uh, spectacularly from the advances of science and reason and knowledge and we'll, we're having this conversation uh, over the internet using incredibly complicated machinery that has been developed over decades of, uh, of progressive development and it's dead easy for us to use because the scientific method is such a good and reliable way of testing new ideas and finding new discoveries. And yet while we're using this uh, technology to have this conversation, other people are using the same technology to deny the fact that vaccines are a, a positive impact in, uh, in in healthcare, or to deny the fact that uh, man uh, man's kind of uh, contribution to climate change is having a, a real and uh, demonstrable effect on the climate, and even to at this point, there are people still denying the fact that the Earth is round. So. 
there is this big disconnect between the advantages of science and, and the public understanding of science. And one of the things we try and do is to try and yeah, get help people recognise that science isn't just the squiggles you saw on a blackboard when you were at school, but it has these real-world, uh, very beneficial effects. And we're, we've actually just recently launched, a, or, or gone public at least, with a very big and significant campaign of ours, or project of ours, that's in that kind of area. Um, which is the Top Top Set Maths Project, which is something we haven't spoken about very publicly recently just because it's something we've been trialling for a while first. But it's something that was a, a big passion of Simon's, being a physicist and mathematician himself. He recognised that you can get to the age of 16, 17, 18 at school, and if you are good at maths, you can get to the very top of your class without ever really being challenged. And you can leave school and go to university or college, uh, you, you might call it, um, having got the top grades you could get at maths, but not really knowing that much real mathematics, because typically your tops, your top class at maths, your top set might have 20, 30 kids in there. And if you're at the very top of that, you're not going to be stretched because the people who are at the bottom of that class need a bit more time and attention to make sure that they can get good grades. So the very top of the class is often a little bit unchallenged. You know, it's not always necessarily stretched as far as it could be. So one thing Simon did was working with uh, other math teachers and talking to mathematicians and schools. He spent a long time trying to figure out what a good curriculum for an extremely challenging uh, set of maths would be or an extremely challenging math curriculum could be. And now in four schools, we've actually trialled a project where we hire a math teacher to come in and they take just four or five or six kids from the entire year. So rather than having a class of 20, you might have a class of just four or five or six who are the absolute best mathematical minds. And rather than sticking to a normal curriculum, which wouldn't challenge them, we push them as far as they can possibly get and just really accelerate through and introduce them to lots of different ideas and different types of maths puzzles and maths challenges. And we've been trialing that in four schools with the idea of saying that by the time these kids get all the way through secondary school or high school and get to the point where they're going to college, they will now have a much, much better grounding in mathematics so that when they're studying maths at a college or when they're going into tech jobs or when they're going to cryptography or coding, um, they have the kind of logical and mathematical background that allow them to really excel and really be challenged and have a good grounding to go on. And so that, that project's called uh, the Top Top Set Maths Project. And um, we've been trialing that out for a year and in four different schools, and it's getting some really good results. It's obviously very early days, so we can't say that uh, there's good confidence intervals and, and all that kind of stuff that you need to do to say this is definitely working. But there's some pretty good indications that these uh, that the kids in these classes are, are doing far better than they probably would have done had they not had this kind of accelerated curriculum. So that's the, the pro-science side of what we do. And there's some other kind of areas around that too, around kind of uh, educating people around science and uh, extending some of the maths education beyond just that top, top set to basically anybody who wants to sign up to uh, get a, an email every week with some maths challenges in it. And it's kind of designed, again, for, for kids who are at uh, high school kind of age to say, it doesn't matter if you're not in one of our four trial schools, you can still get this interesting math puzzle sent to you every week and do some of those. That's the pro-science stuff. The flip side is where we start uh, campaigning against pseudoscience and trying to, to close the gap from the other side where 
Uh, and this is where a lot of my background comes in because I don't have a formal science education. I did science last when I was in high school and did maths at uh, sort of our A level. I'm not sort of 18 was the last time I did maths. So I don't have a huge background in, uh, in my sort of professional life in that area, but I do have a lot of uh, experience challenging pseudoscience. So I try and the way I see it is you have one side of science, which is all about pushing the boundaries and expanding into new territories and, and you know, really trying to push what we know. And I think skepticism is about defending the territories, defending the borders to stop what we already have established from crumbling away into the sea of pseudoscience to say, we know this is true and we can, we can help ensure that uh, we don't lose this ground, we don't lose this, this footing to the forces that are out there that want to convince you that these sugar pills will cure your cancer and this person can really read your mind or communicate with your dead loved ones or, or all these types of things. And um, that's where the bulk of my work tends to be is in challenging pseudoscience and uh, campaigning about it, trying to get it outlined in the press, trying to get uh, interest and trying to get uh, regulatory action on it. Wow, that's super cool. So, um, so along those lines, what are some of the projects that you've tackled with the Good Thinking Society? I think the biggest project we've had, um, and this is one that's probably, I'd say, take it per, if you look at how I spend my daily my daily time over the last three years, this would be the, the thing that stands out in that pie chart as being the biggest segment. Is um, Here in the UK, we've got the National Health Service, so you've got kind of a good socialised medicine type uh, system going on, single payer, kind of it's nobody pays for it apart from taxes, uh, which is a really great system, but obviously it is constrained in terms of how much budget there is to get real quality healthcare in there. And yet at the same time, we found they were uh, funding homeopathy in several different institutions all around the UK um, to an, an amount that people weren't even sure how much taxpayer funding was going on giving homeopathic pills, which as, as anybody who's looked into homeopathy will realize they don't work, they don't do anything, they are literally just sugar pills, they're diluted to the point where there is nothing at all in them other than the, the base pill that you're, uh, you're sort of supposed to be diluting things into. Um, so we had this situation where the National Health Service is funding an untold amount of homeopathy. And one of the things I've been doing over the last three years was for the first step was figuring out exactly how much the funding there even was. And that was a, a harder step than I'd imagined, because you'd think that if this is a government program and this is a government healthcare system, you'd think they would know how much of their money they're wasting on stuff that doesn't work. But as it turns out, there is nobody in the National Health Service or the Department of Health or the government whose job it is to keep track of where those types of funding decisions are made. It's not like one central body says, right, we are or we're not going to fund homeopathy for the entire of the UK. Instead, the UK is split up into about 230 different health bodies and every one of them makes their own local regional decision. And nobody at the, the national level asks all those different bodies how much they're spending and tallies that figure up. It's just not anybody's job to do that. So it was my job. And so I started sending freedom of information requests to all those different regions to see how much you're spending, how much you spent over the last couple of years, what sort of conditions you're given sugar pills out for. And uh, that took about, I'd say, four, five, six months, something like that, before we got a picture, which said that the UK was spending round about £5 million a year uh, on homeopathy. And you know that's not a small amount of money. If you're looking at the, the healthcare budget of an entire country, it might seem like a drop in the ocean. It might seem not that, like it's not that very much because they're talking in the region of billions and even trillions of times. But if you imagine what £5 million can do in terms of nurses' salaries, in terms of doctors' salaries, in terms of MRI machines, in terms of public health measures to tackle alcohol dependency, 
all of a sudden, you know, that number really makes a significant difference. If you can put that five million pounds into something that actually works. And because we've got a finite pot of money in the National Health Service, it makes sense to use that finite pot of money on stuff that works and get rid of the stuff that doesn't. And um, once we knew where homeopathy was being funded across the country, we then had an opportunity to monitor for when contracts were going to come up and be signed, because as soon as they make a decision that they're going to continue funding it, we can then potentially challenge that decision because they're using public money. We can take them, we can effectively, if they don't uh, handle a consultation or handle that contract review correctly, we could potentially take them to court to say you're effectively misusing public funds by uh, giving it uh, away on stuff what we know doesn't work. And so we actually ended up uh, bringing the startings uh, the, uh, of court proceedings, we, the very starting uh, start of that process, we brought against uh, the Liverpool Health Body, uh, it was called the CCG, a clinical commissioning group, and said, you've decided to continue funding homeopathy, but there's no evidence that it works. And when you ask the public, should we get rid of this? The public didn't disagree with you getting rid of it, and yet you decided to continue funding it anyway. That's not how you spend public money. That's not a responsible uh, requisitioning process, a responsible decision-making process, and we will effectively take you to court unless you take another look at this and stop funding it. And after about a year of... Uh, initial legal conversations and then they went and did uh, they did another public consultation another public review and after a year they stopped funding homeopathy and several other parts of the country followed suit and we're now in a position where the effect of the work that we've been doing has not only directly challenged it in some places where we've written to them and they've stopped funding it as a result of the fact that we've brought attention to this and pointed out that this might not be legal but other parts of the country have also stopped funding homeopathy. And we think there is uh, a good case to be made that some of that was because of our work elsewhere, that there are places saying, well, this is already pretty borderline. If we know there's a body out there who is really going to scrutinize this, can we defend it under that scrutiny? And if we can't, it's probably better we get rid of it now than we wait until we get uh, correspondence that says uh, it's good, that we're going to be sort of next on the, the, the list of people to talk to. Wow, so you guys are really making some good progress over there. That, that's awesome. Yeah, we really are. It's it, it, it's surprising. I mean, I've been involved in the the, the skeptical uh, conversation, skeptical activism regarding homeopathy since two thousand and nine. It was one of the first things that we really did when we we set up Merseyside Skeptics. Um, but if you'd have told me then that within eight years. I would be working on projects that have an appreciable impact on homeopathy funding and, and could well get to a point, and I'm, I'm starting to get more confidence that we'll get to a point where the, the NHS will stop funding homeopathy in the next couple of years. I think that the end of that tunnel is at sight. It's not going to be easy and it's certainly not guaranteed, but it definitely feels like there's the right momentum going in that direction and various other different parts of the, the country or different parts of the funding uh, of, of homeopathy on the NHS uh, have come under increased scrutiny in lots of different areas. A lot of that scrutiny from us, but not exclusively from us. Uh, even the, the Department of Health and the government themselves have started to turn that uh, that magnifying glass on themselves to really scrutinise where their funding is. I think we're in a position where it could uh, it could really be a thing of the past, where it ought to be, because this is money that can be spent on stuff that actually works. It's it's ludicrous that we should be in a position where there's anything spent on things that are demonstrably shown not to work, or there's no demonstrable proof that they do work. That's it's it's crazy to think that it it for some people it's a controversial statement to say you should be able to prove something works before you spend taxpayer money <laughs> providing it. But for some people, that's a controversial statement. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in the states, the FTC has made um, a statement, but so far, no other regulation has really uh, followed that. But to me, it seems like 
kind of a weird thing because it's kind of the low-hanging fruit. If there's anything we can get rid of, it's this, since we know it doesn't work and it's being passed off as, as medicine. So it's, it's kind of puzzling. Well, I think it is, but I can sort of see it a little bit from the regulator's point of view. So if you think of what the uh, the FTC or the FDA are doing, especially the FDA, who I think haven't made statements about homeopathy, I don't think, or maybe, or if they did, it was it was only recent. But if you think that they are at the moment policing all of the other spending, all of the other drugs that are out there, and the drugs that really do do something, they're they're policing, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and making sure that they can back up the claims for drugs that are being made. They're making sure that products are being recalled when they've been found to be dangerous in this way or contaminated in that way, and that's all stuff that has a really clear, really easy to understand direct harm. Um, I can imagine that it's easy for them to see well. Yeah, homeopathy, it's just sugar pills. If it's a sugar pill, is it going to be as harmful as this pharmaceutical over here, which we know has this effect, etc., etc.? And I can, I can imagine that argument being quite persuasive. Of course, the flip side of that argument is, while this is just a sugar pill, it is being given to people as something that works. It's been said that this actually works. So it's not that the sugar pill itself is going to harm anyone, but the omission of actual medicine uh, as a result of taking the sugar pill is what's going to harm people. And I think that's becoming much more clear to, to regulators. Um, I think they're seeing that in, in uh, homeopathy. I think they're seeing it with some um, vitamin supplements, things like that, that these aren't isolated uh, and, and harmless things. I, I think they contribute to... Not only is it the, the, the product themselves and the claims being made for the product, but I think the worldview that they support, it also is very uh, important to challenge because it's very easy for people to, to, to get into a worldview where my homeopath says, I should be taking this, this pill that they're going to give me because those evil, big pharma, nasty chemical pills that doctors say work, those are terrible and bad for you. So I'll take this homeopathic pill here and maybe I'll take this other homeopathic pill for that and maybe I'll take this herbal supplement over here because anything that's big pharma, anything that's doctors is bad. And I think there is that worldview which we see as being increasingly prominent at the moment, I think. So I think maybe that's the other reason that um, regulators should uh, should see this as being not just about stopping people uh, believing that sugar pills can be uh, beneficial to them, but also understanding how to challenge that worldview before people end up in incredibly dangerous positions. And we see these stories all the time of parents who've given their child manuka honey to cure their measles because they believe that natural is best and that the manuka honey will have some sort of effect and it doesn't and the kid ends up in a very dangerous dangerous health condition we see these things all the time unfortunately yeah and i think it is hard to explain the flip side to people and to convey to them that it's not cool to give people what they think is medicine that isn't medicine uh, it's, it's kind of hard to just explain that to people sometimes yeah, it is. I mean, it always comes up. I give a lot of talks about homeopathy. I mean, this is just one of the projects that we've done, and there's lots of other other ones that uh, that have had uh, impact too. But because we were in the middle of a big campaign on homeopathy, and we're looking for support in in various consultations, I give a lot of talk about homeopathy, and I find that even skeptics would say, "Well, if somebody comes in to see a doctor and there's nothing really wrong with them, but they're convinced that they need something, is it that bad if a doctor gives them a sugar pill?" Uh, and it's and that's the mentality people can have. But I think there's so many different elements to that uh, to unpick. And I think there's some really interesting arguments in there. And one of them was actually uh, an argument I heard from a, a vet who was uh, looking at homeopathy when it comes to animal care. Um, they were saying effectively that if you're telling a pet owner that every time they see a vet, if they don't come away with a pill in their hand, they haven't had the right treatment, 
then you're sort of introducing a, a medicalized culture or an expectation of, of receiving a pill, which is always going to come back and bite you because then the next time the, the pet's brought in and, and it's fine or it's got a uh, the kind of virus or, or something that will just get better by itself, that owner will go away thinking, I need to have something to administer. I need a pill or I've not had proper veterinary treatment. And so give me an antibiotic, even though they're not going to help because I demand something. Um, and so, the, yeah, the vet that I was talking to was saying is it's actually much better to take the time to explain to someone why their animal doesn't need a pill or you know, take the time to explain to a patient why they don't need a pill um, rather than just dismissing them with a pill so that the next time they come around, they'll think they need a pill again. I think it's a very persuasive argument and it's it's the idea of giving someone something that doesn't work and you know it doesn't doesn't do anything but you don't tell the patient that it doesn't do anything seems to be a, a fundamental erosion of that um that patient trust that, that that you have to have that informed consent you have to tell the patient what they're actually getting you can't lie to them about it otherwise you're in a very ethically very uh, dangerous area I think. Yeah, I agree. It's funny you mentioned the antibiotic situation. Uh, virology is kind of one of the things that interests me the most. And it's funny because people still think that mm. you can take an antibiotic for a virus when it doesn't do anything for them. And they expect to be treated for something and they expect to be handed a pill and they don't like the idea that, hey, you know, we're not going to do anything for this because most of the time this kind of stuff just goes away on its own. It's a viral infection. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing is it, it what it needs in, in healthcare, it, and I think doctors are, are now taking this line, but it needs that hard line of saying we aren't going to prescribe antibiotics for something that is not, uh, uh, that antibiotic can't affect. But I think if you go back 20, 30 years, that definitely wasn't the case. And you know they, that there'd be some doctors who would hand antibiotics out like Smarties. And that's kind of why we're in this position where, uh, you know, we, we have antibacterial resistance, things like that. But it, it takes that level of, um, open and honest consultation with a patient because otherwise, I mean, and it's going to take longer because you, you get a patient who comes in with a virus that's going to get better by itself or with not very much wrong with them and they're going to feel better in a couple of days anyway. If you fob them off quickly with a uh, with an antibiotic, um, they might be out of, the, out of your room very quickly, out of the consultation room very quickly and you can get through seeing your next patients. Um, so I could see that being very persuasive, a, a very seductive as an idea. But it is going to contribute to these uh, these uh, these bad side effects in the future. So it's actually much better to take the time to explain how a virus is different from a bacteria to some degree. You know, don't go into the extreme virology of it because I'm not sure that everybody would want to hear it would necessarily uh, tune into that. But by having someone to actually talk them through what's going on, I think you end up with a much better informed um group of patients a better informed society when it comes to health and maybe we don't have quite as many pitfalls that people can fall into maybe people aren't gonna go to Gwyneth Paltrow's website and believe everything they read there if they have a bit more consultation from their doctors so yeah I think there's a lot of very interesting elements to it but I, th I just can't get to a, pl a place I'm surprised anybody who really thinks about it can get to a place where they're okay with doctors giving out pills that they know don't work um for any any sort of side of this yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, moving on to one of your other projects, you did a project that involved, uh, I think it might have been eBay or, or Amazon, and their shipments to local stores and, and Black Salve. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it is Black Salve. Gosh, that's a, a tremendously dangerous and uh, an icky substance. So I've, I've had my eye on Black Salve for a little while. There seems to be this rising um, belief in sections of society. 
um, that uh, cancer can be cured through the this whole slew of of other ways that they know that cancer can be cured whoever the they are the unspecified they capital e um they know it can be cured and they don't want you to have the cure but actually it's very very simple all you need to do is slather some exactly slather some black salve on your skin or uh, alka, uh take alkaline water to make your body ph level very alkaline because apparently cancer can't live in an alkaline environment which isn't necessarily true i mean it can't live in an it can't live in a, a, a petri dish filled with alkaline but uh, that's that's true of many substances i imagine that cancer couldn't live in um so yeah there is a real um subculture of uh, of, of cancer cures and black salve is amongst the worst of them i think in terms of what it actually does it's labeled as this um a natural escarotic which will draw a drawing salve it's occasionally called so you put the you rub it on your skin or you smear it on your skin and leave it there and it'll harden over and form a scab and then apparently it will draw the toxins out and then one day the scab will come off and the toxins will be will be in with it what's actually happening is the substance is burning your skin and the thing that's coming off in a chunk is a chunk of your dead burnt skin it kills all it kills off kind of the, the whole skin and comes away in chunks which is a tremendously bad idea. And even if you had skin cancer, you know, a very topical cancer that if you went to see a doctor, they might freeze it and, uh, and you know, cut it, cut it out very quickly in a relatively routine operation. If you catch it early enough, it might be a case of just kind of uh, having it removed quite quickly. But even if you had that kind of skin cancer, where maybe burning it off with a herbal substance might have some level of sense behind it, because you are at least removing the skin that the cancer is in the action of the, the substance might not even be quick enough to stop any metastasis. So yes, you might get the stuff that's on top of the skin, but where else has the cancer gone in your body? Where else has it spread in the time that it takes for this stuff to do what it does in a very nasty kind of way? Um, but there are people who take it for breast cancer, where the tumor will be deep below the skin, where there's no way that this is going to be useful for, for people. And we, I've seen patient reports and I've sp sp actually spoken to people who've lost loved ones who've believed that this black salve is going to help them out and going to cure their cancer. And unfortunately, they find out way too late in proceedings that it's not going to help them and that you know they haven't got, uh, haven't got any time left. And in fact, there was a, a meeting, uh, an event being held uh, on the south coast of England a, a few years ago that we uh, had someone go along and attend and actually film some of it, where they were talking about all these different ways of curing cancer. And someone there, there was a, a chap in the audience who said he'd had throat cancer uh, and had it successfully treated, but now he has to keep going back to the hospital in order to uh, have regular checkups. And the guy who was giving the seminar said, well, if you've had throat cancer and you've been out of the hospital for a couple of weeks and it hasn't returned you don't need to go back they only want you coming back so they can make more money out of you to have you keep coming back in and seeing you all the time so just don't bother going back and if it comes back what you could do is gargle with black salve so actually incredibly dangerous advice in every single way that's the worst possible advice you give to someone who is you know a survivor of cancer um so yeah so i spotted that uh that black salve was just being advertised to to buy on eBay, and this is true. I think still in uh, in America and some uh, Australian Australian listings, you can find black salve ad advertised. Um, but I found that not only was it being advertised, but Amazon often have a sort of a, a click and collect, and eBay have it as well, like a click and collect service with a local high street store or a, a national chain of high street stores. So instead of getting it delivered to your house, you can have it delivered to a store, and it'll be kept there until you go in and collect it. 
So I had it delivered to an Argos store, which is one of the the biggest names in sort of high street retail here in the UK. Every town will have an Argos. And so I had this incredibly dangerous substance, which is certainly uh, responsible for the deaths of many, many people. I had it delivered to be picked up from a high street store where you might, where you might go and pick up some child's toys. Um, yeah, absolutely incredible. And it's because that we were able to to put this whole story together and then get it uh, get it to people we know in the press to tell this story properly. This ran in the, the newspapers. This got a, a nice amount of attention. And actually, Amazon and eBay removed the listings for Black Salve uh, from their UK listings. So you could no longer buy the stuff in the UK as a result of that story. So it was a a, a good example of how to go from initially spotting a listing into how you can go about investigating and how you can get put together a story that the media would be interested in and how you can use that media attention to then tackle the root problem uh, as well. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I heard you talking about that on Skeptics with the K, and you guys are doing some awesome work over there. Sometimes it feels hard in the U.S. to get any traction or to, to make any difference or, or real change like that. Yeah, we've had we've had a good run. I mean, I'm not sure I'm not sure how uh, that, that there are barriers to it in the US. So if you if you look at what that story there actually involved, because it could seem like um, the barrier to skeptical activism is very very high, and it's very very hard to have these types of levels of success. But if you see what that story actually involved, it was ordering something that cost me about £10 on Amazon, so what, 20 bucks, something like that, you know, spotting the Amazon thing, having it ordered, going in and collecting it, taking photos of the whole thing, and then passing that to a journalist who we thought might be interested in the story. And I think it was BuzzFeed, no, it was The Times, that one. Um, but we've had other stories on BuzzFeed and things like that. Um, but the, the actual uh, work that was required... I don't think there's a very high barrier there. I don't think it's a very high bar of entry. I think anybody could do that type of stuff. Maybe they don't necessarily know how to communicate it to the journalist or maybe they don't quite know how to um, put together all the information to make it easy for a journalist to see what the story is. But I think that's not the hardest thing to learn. And really, the barrier to entry for skeptical activism is the effort that it takes to do it. If you commit to do it, you'll find that uh, you, you can have uh, some, some pretty useful effects and you can be very effective pretty quickly, really. So, yeah, maybe it's, uh, it's in different parts of the world, things are working slightly differently. You'll have different regulatory processes and different uh, ways of, of, uh, of doing things. But I still think the core idea of doing something small and finding a way of telling it in the right kind of way to a, a local or a national journalist, that's not that hard to do. It's uh, it's surprisingly easy once you once you start moving on it. Really, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's awesome. Yeah, ever since I heard this story about Black Salve and and your reporting on it, um, we we've been thinking about doing something like that around here, and I'm thinking of maybe my co-host Ashley and I getting uh, some buzz going and and trying something like this locally. I think it's always worth doing. I think one of the things I always say is if you if you do it, if you take the little step to do it, you either find that it's very effective uh, or you find that it's not effective, but you can sort of see why and it helps you figure out what, what to do better next time. Um, but all the way along, you, you at least get an interesting story out of it. And going along to the Mind Body Spirit Festival or the equivalent or going along to this free seminar you've seen advertised that's going to tell you how to cure your cancer with this or how to make a million dollars with that you know going along to these kind of scams or these uh these uh talks by people who are entirely wholeheartedly uh sincere in what they're doing but are entirely wrong in what they're doing um i think if you go along to them you can see how people might believe in what they're saying uh, and actually seeing that in person is very very important because if you can see the the sales pitch 
then you can understand what it is that people are, are buying. You can understand what they're buying into and you can find ways of explaining why that isn't necessarily true. So if you never go along and see what, what a homeopath or a chiropractor or, or whoever are saying to their, their potential patients, when you talk to those potential patients saying, oh yeah, homeopaths, they're all liars, they'll tell you this, that and the other. You don't know that because you've not seen that. So I think going along and seeing it for yourself arms you in a way that makes you far more effective at disarming those claims in future and also sometimes you get some really weird stories out of it some really weird experiences <laughs> and uh yeah i delight in dining out on those experiences nice so one of my final questions is uh why do you think science uh, literacy and, and critical thinking are are important especially these days gosh i mean that's a huge question i think the, the where I'd start with it is something that Mike Hall, who's uh, my co-host uh, on uh, Skeptics of the K and the president of the Merseyside Skeptic Society, it's something he always says, which is that I want to think things that are as correct as possible. And there's two ways for me to achieve that. When I find something that I'm wrong about, there's two ways for me to get back to a place where I'm thinking the right thing. I can either change what I think or I can change the world to fit what I think. And the first of those is much, much less work. It's much easier to change what I think than to warp reality to fit what I think. And I think that's a, a good way of looking at things. You know, I, want to, I want to be right. I don't want to just assume I'm right. I want to find out that I'm right. And if I'm wrong, I want to change my opinion to, to be right. And I think it takes critical thinking to do that. Um, but I also think we are... I don't think we're uniquely mired. I think it's very easy to say, oh, these days there are so many crazy claims out there on the internet. But I don't think it's the the, the level of crazy claims or the, the frequency or the ratio is hugely different to what it might have been 100 years ago or 200 years ago where you have uh, P.T. Barnum s quack selling snake oil from the back of uh, wagons in the, in the Wild West. Um, I think we are inevitably going to stumble across ideas that are good and ideas that are bad. And the bad ideas can be very harmful to us, whether they're financially harmful, whether they're harmful to our health, whether we invest emotionally in them and find out that they're wrong. Uh, and the best way to protect ourselves in any of those ways is to be able to have good tools to evaluate what claims are true and which ones aren't, what's, what's reality and what's not. And I think that's where critical thinking is absolutely key. And we see that across health claims. We see it across claims about being able to talk to your loved ones. Um, but we also see it in everyday life and political life. Um, I'm sure uh, whichever side of whichever divide any any listeners might be on, be they American, be they uh, British, we've seen in the last couple of years a lot of false claims being made and uh, and stories and um, uh, uh, and ideas being propped up with false stories, with false news, with false facts, and the ability to establish what is a genuine fact and what is manipulation, what is spin, what is lie, and what is mistake is incredibly valuable and I think uh, political discourse, social discourse would be in a very different place even over the last couple of years if people were better placed to evaluate quickly and uh, to sift reality from fiction. Hmm. Yeah, that is a great answer. Um, so where can my listeners hear more of you if, they, if they're if they so inclined? Uh, so if you want to hear more of me uh, talking about stuff, I'm on the Skeptics with a K podcast, which is a fortnight, fortnightly show put out by the Merseyside Skeptic Society, where we each bring a story and kind of talk through a, a piece of kind of skeptical investigation. Uh, I also do a monthly show called Be Reasonable, where I interview someone I wholeheartedly disagree with. And so I'll, I'll talk to people who believe the world is flat. I'll talk to people who believe that we can survive without eating or drinking. Um, I'll talk to people who believe that all diseases can be cured with the application of industrial bleach. 
and um, I try and uh, have a conversation with them that remains as civil and inquisitive and polite as possible while still staying firm around uh, facts and reality and trying to establish the gap between what we both think. And that's a, a different kind of project for me. Uh, and if you want to see more of the Good Thinking Society's work, you can go to goodthinkingsociety.org. And uh, yeah, if listeners like what they see there, we are a charity. We exist uh, basically in part because of uh, the funding we get from people who think, I quite like that. I'm going to throw $10 in. Um, so if people do like the work and want it to continue, then uh, throwing a little bit in keeps us, uh, keeps us going. Well, thanks, Marsh. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. In my interview with Marsh, she mentioned getting out and rubbing shoulders and talking to people you might disagree with to get a first-hand experience with their perspective. This pretty much applies to all aspects of life, but in particular, he was talking about getting into the mix with people who have a strong non-scientific or pseudo-scientific belief and getting first-hand experience with what they're saying. Which is pretty cool because in our next interview, we talk with a couple people who do just that. Stay tuned for our interview with Ross Blotcher and Carrie Poppy. Thanks as always to Night Moves for letting us use your song Carl Sagan off their Penny Days album. You can find their music on iTunes and I recommend checking them out. Thanks for listening.